right, James chapter number 1 tonight, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1. And uh, the, the body of our lesson tonight really begins at verse number 2. But we are going to say a quick word about verse number 1, give just a very short synopsis about the perspective of the book of James. But we're going to read the first 16 verses of uh, this first chapter of the book of James. The Word of God says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Being if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, give it all men liberally, and afraid not, and it shall be given him. Let him ask his faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall a rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. When he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. What can we say about this man, James? He introduces himself in the very first verse, and this is how he speaks of himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, there are several Jameses in the Word of God. There is James, the brother of John. Uh, there is also James, the son of Alphaeus. And then who we believe this to be is James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very instructive, very interesting and enlightening and illuminating that he refers to himself not as the brother of Jesus Christ, but as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we talked about last week, James spent the majority of his life in unbelief. In fact, all of Christ's brethren spent the majority of their early life in unbelief. It was not until the risen Lord appeared unto James... Paul goes out of his way to tell us that the Lord appeared unto James, that it seems that James became a believer at that moment. By the time he gets to the upper room in uh, the first chapter of the book of Acts, the Bible says that Mary was there and the brethren. So it would appear that in the period of time after the resurrection and before the ascension of Christ that uh, the Lord appeared to James, we know that for sure, but it would appear that James at that moment exercised saving faith in Christ, placed his faith in Christ, not as his brother, but as his savior. And uh, then we, we, I think, can, can make, uh, I'm careful about assumptions, you can get into trouble, but I don't think it is, I don't think it's outside the realm of, of reasonability to think that James probably went for testimony of this to his other brothers. Uh, he, he went and talked to Judas and, and Joseph and, and Simon and told them that he had seen the Lord, that their brother, their half-brother Christ, was risen from the dead that he was truly the Messiah. This James lived, as we said, the majority of his early life in unbelief. But he could not refute the bodily, physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This crashed headlong into his life of adherence and devotion to the Old Testament law. 
Now, we at length last week talked about James' perspective on Christianity. There's a few things I wanted to say last week that I didn't get to that I want to use as an introduction this week. We covered a lot of ground last week showing that James seemed to have a propensity and an affinity for the Old Testament law. All throughout his, his time, you know, he became what we would call the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He was certainly one of the elders at that church. And he seems to be the leading figure all through the book of Acts, uh, particularly after, after Peter departs and, and he remains in Jerusalem. He seems to become the shepherd of that flock. And it seems as though throughout his entire pastorate that the old habit of following the law died hard with him. Uh, when you come to Acts chapter number 15, they have that conference at Jerusalem. Uh, James permits that the Gentiles don't have to follow the law. But he's very clear in saying that he's talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about Jews. The implication being that Jews that had believed on the Lord were still expected to follow the Old Testament law. But when you come down to the end of the book of Acts, whenever Paul makes his last journey to Jerusalem, uh, it is James who encourages him to go into the temple and pay the sacrifice and perform the, the vows and pay the charges associated with, with culminating a Nazarene vow. And uh, it's that very action that leads to Paul's arrest. But it was James that prodded him to do that. All the way to the end of the book of Acts, it seems that he's still struggling with this clear separation and, and, and parting and, and severing from Old Testament uh, Jewish worship. Now, I spent a lot of time last week being pretty hard on James. You know, uh, I, I feel like probably for a lot of people that were here last week, you're thinking, boy, preachers don't like James. Why is he teaching through the book of James if he don't like James? I love the book of James. I have a lot of respect for the person James. Uh, but I think it's undeniable that he seemed to struggle with this. Now, there's a few things we have to remember, though, about when James writes the Epistle of James. It is, as far as we know, the very first book of the New Testament that was pinned down as far as the, the chronology of when these books were written. And consider for just a moment that when James wrote the, the book of James, when the Holy Ghost put the pen of inspiration in his hand, and, and he, he did not superimpose his will upon James' will, but he co-opted the personal experiences and personality of James. When the Spirit of God did this, consider a few simple facts. One, the gospel had not been largely preached to the Gentiles. It would be after uh, Stephen's martyrdom that the Jews, Jewish Christians would be scattered and would go all over the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Gentile nations. You remember that the gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so this idea of the gospel was predominantly a, a Jewish affair. I'll remind you also that whenever James writes his epistle, Paul has not been given all of the grand revelations of New Testament truth and grace that God would later reveal to him. Uh, I think we can we can make the safe assumption that the book of James was probably written even before Paul was ever saved. Certainly it would have been very early on. After Paul got saved, he spends three years in the desert, and then he goes and he meets James and, and Peter and, and John. Then he goes, and it's 14 years before Paul ever returns back to Jerusalem. And it was during that time that God showed him many of the great and grand truths about New Testament grace and the role of the Gentiles in the church age. None of that had been revealed whenever James wrote the Epistle of James. In fact, Christians were not even called Christians until Acts chapter number 11 at Antioch. They were, the believers were called Christians first at Antioch. When James writes the Epistle of James, the term Christian is not even in the nomenclature. It's not even in existence. 
Well, then we must ask this question. What did James consider a person that believed on Jesus Christ? I think that in James' mind, being that the gospel seemed to be a Jewish affair when he wrote this epistle, that this idea of Gentiles believing on Christ and this, this great swath of Gentile believers being called out from amongst the world was something that wasn't even on his radar. All this truth that God revealed unto Paul had not yet been revealed. To, to James, a Gentile, there were two types of Jews in the world in James' mind. Jews that had rejected the Messiah and Jews that had received the Messiah. He considered a believer to be a person that had received the Messiah. Didn't call them Christians. That term didn't even exist when he pinned this down. So to James, a, a Christian was a, in his mind, in his experience, was a Jew that had attained to the intent and goal and providential plan of the Old Testament law. You remember Christ made a statement to the disciples. He said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of God. That was the type of person James thought of a believer being. Someone whose righteousness, by receiving the Messiah, by owning Him as Lord, that had been then through the Spirit of God empowered to live out the realization of what God had laid out for the Jews in the Old Testament. Now, there are some hard truths that no doubt James had to come to terms with later in his life. I don't know when, if ever, he sat down and read the book of Hebrews, but the book of Hebrews makes it perfectly clear that for those that dwell in the knowledge of Calvary and of all that it means, in other words, for those that have read the book of Hebrews and those Jews that were standing at the edge and were, like James, holding fast to their Judaism, that they had to make a choice and they had to make a decision. But for James, he did not view the Old Testament law and Calvary as being diametrically opposed and mutually exclusive. Now, you can indict whatever and impute whatever to James that you want to. I don't believe James was giving sacrifices and, and, and trusting in the blood of bulls and goats. I believe he saw Christ as the end of righteousness to everyone that believes. But this clear demarcation between Jew and Gentile was not in James's mind. He did not view a believer as being someone that had turned their back on Judaism, but instead he viewed a believer as being someone that understood what was truly intended through the Old Testament law. He would have been somebody that would have seen all of the Old Testament law as pointing towards Christ and finding its culmination in Jesus Christ. Now, who are the people that he's writing to? He says to twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. A lot we can say about that. It's interesting that he... He is evidently not talking about ethnic Jews exclusively. So, well, how do you know that, preacher? Well, because he doesn't say to the two tribes that remain, he doesn't say to the two nations that have been divided, but he says to the twelve tribes. And the reason is because there again, I think he saw believers as completed Jews, as people that had believed on Christ and had experienced the culmination of what God intended in the Old Testament law. So, who is he writing to? Well, you remember after Stephen was martyred that things didn't get any better for these Jews that had received the Messiah. In fact, at that time, Saul, uh, I mean, he was going wide open. He was going all over. Uh, he was jailing Christians. He had uh, stood as Stephen was martyred and held the coats of men uh, that stoned Stephen to death. So the persecution of the Jews had intensified. And the Bible says in Acts 8, 4, that those Jews had spread. They had been scattered, is the Bible word. They had been scattered. The Jewish Gentile, or I'm sorry, the Jewish Christian, what we call a diaspora, a scattering of people, seems to be the event that prompted James to sit down and write this. 
It's evident it could have happened before then, because the Jews have not been scattered from Jerusalem, and the gospel has not sounded for it. Uh, it's evident it had to have been after that. And I think we can assume it was before Gentiles uh, came to be very prevalent in the New Testament church. Elsewise, I don't think James would have written only to those that he would call of the twelve tribes, those that were Israelites. So he's writing to Jewish Christians in the New Testament period, and he's writing to those that are under intense persecution. Now, this explains something about what James's message is. Because when he opens, he opens this way in verse 2. Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Now, there are two basic themes to the portion of Scripture that we're going to study tonight. And they divide themselves this way. Now, the overall theme, and he addresses about five or six key themes for, for Jewish Christians in this day. The first of which, and this is our lesson tonight, is the Christian and his battles, the struggles, the difficulties, the trials, the temptations of life. And these two categories are described this way. These are the two doctrines and truths that he takes up. The first are the textings of the Christian life. And he speaks of this in verses 2 through 12. And then in verses 13 through 16, he speaks of the temptations of the Christian life. It's very interesting because James explicitly reveals that the word temptation in the Word of God, it has dual definitions. Two connotations. You remember I said just a moment ago, context is king. There are many places in the Word of God that if you don't look at the context of surrounding verses, sometimes the surrounding chapters, you'll misinterpret the Word of God and not rightly divide it. Well, James uses the term temptation, and yet he uses it in two different ways. Notice what he says in verse 2. Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. And then later on in verse 13, he says, Let no man say when he is tempted, Excuse me, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Definitely James, when he used the word temptation, had two different definitions. And so he divides these two ideas. The first is the word temptation can have the idea of the solicitation to do evil. Now this will inform a lot of your theology as you study the word of God when you understand this. A lot of people say, well, when Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness, does that mean that Christ wanted to do evil? No. Christ is God, right? And he cannot be tempted to do evil in the sense of the solicitation to do evil. So the temptation, when, Christ, when Satan tempted him, it means he tested him, he tried him. But it doesn't mean that Christ had a desire or propensity to do evil because Christ did not have a sin nature. He still don't have a sin nature. He never had a sin nature. He's separate from sinners. He did no sin, he knew no sin, and in him was no sin. So when he talks about temptation in the latter verses that we'll study, he's talking about the solicitation to do evil. That, that whenever there's something that you know is wrong, but you have a desire, a strong desire to do what's wrong, and you say, I'm tempted to do the wrong thing. And then the word temptation can also mean the afflictions, persecutions that Christians encounter. What it literally means is this. It is a trying, it is a testing that takes place in transpires in our life. This, by the way, is the reason that Bible talks about in the Old Testament, God tempting the nation of Israel. Not saying he, he solicited them to do evil, but it's saying that he tried them, he proved them, he put them through trials and afflictions that who and what they are might be manifest and exposed in their minds. So it's these dual ideas, and we're going to say a word about how these inform each other and interact with each other before we're done. But the first thing that he takes up is testing. Now, why do we talk about this? Well, because the people he's writing to are under severe persecution. It's not random. It's not that he woke up one day and said, you know, I'm going to write about this topic. 
I'm not, I'm not heard any good epistles written on this topic. I'm just going to take up this topic and write. No, he wrote upon this because the people he's writing to had been persecuted, had been scattered, they'd been driven from their homeland, they weren't welcome in Jerusalem, they weren't welcome where they were at because Jews had never been welcome anywhere other than Jerusalem, and a lot of times not even there. And so, essentially, they, they were homeless wanderers. This is the reason, by the way, Peter writes to the same group of people and he calls them pilgrims. I, I like how God says that. that not wanderers, pilgrims. A wanderer don't know where they're going, but a pilgrim has a destination in mind. And so he talks about temptation in the sense of testing. And he reveals that testing comes to an, into our life for two main reasons. It comes into our life, number one, with a purpose. There's nothing you go through that God doesn't have a reason for. You may not know the reason. You may not be able to understand the reason. You may not be able to find the reason. But every, every trial, every difficulty, every persecution, every affliction, every test that comes in your life is there with a purpose. One of the great tragedies of the modern school system is we're teaching kids how to do nothing more than take a test. We're not really teaching them the knowledge. We're not really helping them apprehend the truth. We're just making them good test takers. God's not like that. God never gives you a test, but the only reason is to give you a test. My father-in-law was one of my teachers when I was in school. I've got another teacher uh, that, that I pastored uh, with Richard Evans. And uh, you can't tell me there weren't times they gave you a pop quiz because they just didn't have nothing else planned. You know? All right, pop quiz time. Hope you're ready. What that really means is I don't have a lesson together for that. God's not like that. Everything he does, he does for a purpose. So what is the purpose? And James reveals what the purpose is. He gives us three reasons for which, three purposes for which God allows testing into our lives. The first is for our enlargement. The second is for our enlightenment. And the third is for our ennoblement. Now you might say, well, what does that mean? Look at verses 2 through 4. He says, My brethren, count all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. When it talks about temptations, it carries the idea with it, trials and testing, of a, a smith that takes gold and places it into a fire, that it might be purged and purified. The smith doesn't put that metal, that gold or that silver, that precious metal, or even some of the more crude and bolder metals, he doesn't put it into the fire to destroy it, he puts it into the fire to develop it. He's doing it to make it more pure, more workable, more valuable. And God brings trials into our life, persecution and affliction into our life, difficulty in our life, not to destroy us, but to develop us. When you think about Job, I think Job is probably the clearest example of that in the Word of God. Job endured trial after trial after trial. That to him, certainly when it happened, and maybe for the rest of his life, he never fully understood it. You know, we're blessed when we read the book of Job. You know why? Because we get to read the first two chapters. Job didn't get to read the first two chapters. Uh, all, all he experiences is suddenly his life is in pieces. And when he comes to the end of it all, God never gives him a reason for why he went through that. God merely says, you need to quit asking why, Job, and recognize who is over it all. I'm God. I've dealt with all this. I've got it under control. You can trust in my person, and then you won't need to know my purpose. So as far as we know, Job went to his grave without ever understanding the things that we understand about his life. And yet Job was able to say this in chapter 23 and verse 10. He said, He knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, 
same, same idea. When he has tried me, Job says, I shall come forth as well. Don't know how God's doing it. Don't know why he's doing it. Or I don't know what he's doing. I guess we wouldn't say it. He says, I know why he's doing it. He's doing it for my good. He's doing it for my enlargement. He's doing it to make me more righteous and more virtuous. Well, how does it do that? Well, I think there's three ways. First, it moves us. Look back at verse number two. He says, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Well, that's, that's a hard verse to read. If you're going through something, that's a hard verse to read. And yet imagine that trials and afflictions have the ability not to bury us, but to bless us. Count it all joy. Has it ever dawned on you that God could be allowing you to go through this in your life to give you more joy? To give you a reason to rejoice? And I'll tell you this, and this may sound hollow to you, there's been times that I've gone through some things that I've not asked for, that I've not expected, that I certainly wouldn't have requested of God. But in those things I found myself moved from my apathy and complacency and forced to reassess my spiritual development and ask myself, am I truly depending on God? Am I truly living for Him? Am I truly serving Him? Is what I'm living for worth Christ dying for? And it disrupted and dislodged me from a place of complacency. I'll tell you this, man, when everything's going sideways, it's hard to sit still. It's hard to, listen, I, I mean, the way a pond grows stagnant is it never gets stirred. Sometimes in life you have to be stirred through affliction, through trials. And you say, oh, that's not fair. Well, take it up with the infinitely loving God that sent his son to die for you on the cross. Look in the face of Calvary and accuse God of being cruel. You can't. In the face of Calvary, we have to see that whatever God is doing, he must be doing out of love. Because he has commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's to, to move us. It's to cause us to rejoice. It's to disrupt our everyday complacency and the status quo and to bring us into greater spiritual development. He says in verse number 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. There's another hard word. Carries with it the idea of abiding under something. And I've often said this, that it's... Patience is not about the fact that we wait, but it's how we wait. And I associate this with a lesson that I saw and, and that God brought home to me in parenting. Uh, my little boy will come up to me and he'll say, Dad, can you do this for me? In fact, this very morning, uh, he, he, he wakes up earlier than everybody. I don't know what it is when you're that age. If you, when you're real young, when you're real old, you can't sleep. So you, if you wake up, you know, the difference is, when you're old, you're breathing with aches and pains. When you're young, you're breathing with energy. And so his mama brought him and, and stuck him in bed with me and uh, she turned on uh, TV, let him watch uh, one of his programs, and I tried to catch a little sleep. You know that great sleep you get when a toddler's sticking a foot in the back of your neck? And my first memory this morning was him saying, Dad! 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 What, son? He said, can we go in the den? I said, no, we can't go in the den. Watch the show. Let daddy sleep. What felt like a millisecond later. Dad. Dad. What, son? Can we go in the den now? I don't know how long it went on. Because whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. But it felt like for hours this exchange took place. And I rolled over. I said, can you have some patience? Now, here's the reality. 
He wasn't going to get up and go to the gym without me saying it's okay. He was waiting. He was doing exactly what I told him to do. But his impatience was betrayed by the manner in which he was waiting. Here's the fact of the matter. It's not simply patience to wait. Because most of the time waiting is outside of our control. We don't want to wait. We have to wait. We're waiting on test results to come back. Listen, we can walk the floor. That will make the doctor call us in soon. We're waiting for a relationship to be resolved. Uh, we, we can fret, we can wring our hands, but that won't fix the problem any sooner. Whatever it is, it's not waiting that is patience, but it's waiting obediently and waiting in faith. <laughs> See, the time of our faith is developed in biblical patience, and biblical patience is waiting in a right spirit. This has the idea of the yoke of oxen being put to the test. When you think about it, what a yoke does is it slows the ox down, it directs the ox, and it brings something fruitful out of the energies and efforts of those oxen. It forces them to walk with purpose. Can't wander here and there. Now they have to slow down, settle down, bear up, and go the right direction. And trying affliction, it does this in our life. Knowing this is trying your faith, work with patience. Look what it says in verse number four. Not only does it move us and mellow us, but it matures us. It says, but let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. Perfect, in this context, has the idea not of moral sinlessness, but rather of maturity, of development. And here's what James is saying. Give God enough time to produce in you what he's trying to produce. Don't get in such a hurry to get out from under your affliction that you miss the purpose behind your affliction. He says that you may be perfect and entire. As the idea of being whole, being complete. And he, he doubles down on this by saying, wanting nothing. That doesn't mean you're not going to want anything, but that means that your life will be brought to full development. That there will be nothing missing from your life. Have you ever known somebody that it seemed like they had everything going for them, but then there was one quality? Might, might have been a young person, and they were, they were beautiful in appearance, they were talented, uh, they had great personality, but they lacked discipline. Or it might have been somebody that had brilliance and discipline, and they had all of the ability in the world, but they lacked personality. They had everything, they were missing that one component, and it stuck out like a fly in the ointment. It was the only thing that your teacher could be drawn to because it was so out of place relative to the rest of their character. As Christians, we often have the same thing. We have certain good qualities that God has developed, and then there's some great failing and shortcoming. Say, preacher, I want to get rid of that. Well, get ready, because oftentimes it takes affliction to do that. Only the fire converts the impurities out of the gold. It, it, it's, not, it's not the hammer, it, it's, it's not the grinder, it's the fire that brings the impurities out of the gold. It's necessary. So, it's given, as we talk about our enlargement, to make us better, to make us more righteous, to move us from complacency, to mellow us, to slow us down, to, to cause us to wait on God, and then also to mature us. Don't get so ready to get out of your problems that you miss what God's trying to teach you and develop in you through that problem. You know the best way? Man, I just, I'm stuck on that. Let patience. Let patience have her perfect work. Let it happen. You can go through all trials, all afflictions. You can go through horrible, awful things, come out the other side, and you didn't let anything happen. You're the same as you come out of it as you were as you went into it. You've got to let that happen. And the way we do that is by meditating upon God's desire of our life, by reading God's Word, by doing some, some self-inventory and self-examination to ask ourselves, 
How could God develop me further? And trying to be keen to listen to the Spirit of God as He builds in our lives. So, textures are given for our enlargement. Number two, they're given for our enlightenment. Look what it says in verse number five. Many of you lack wisdom, but an ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. And we'll read a little further here in a moment. But here's what he's saying. Now, no doubt these believers that have been scattered were trying to decide and determine what they needed to do about their situation. Uh, no doubt they were met on a daily basis with the question, how should I live? How should I behave? They've been driven from their homes, from their culture. They were being forced to live amongst people that they did not know and that they did not understand. Paul would go on later, by the way, to flesh out some of this nuance. And he talk about how they were to behave when it came to things like meat that was offered unto idols and Christian liberty and the things like a, a ritual observance of Judaism or facets of it in the church relative to Gentile believers where they expected to observe holy days and how were they to interact with each other. This is the kind of wisdom that James is talking about. He said you've been, you've been ripped from your home, you've been thrust into an environment, you don't know what to do, and you're probably trying to figure out how you're supposed to live. He says this, there's wisdom that is required. When trials come, we always, every one of us would ask the same thing. Why? Why? What do I do? Where do I turn? How do I live? Wisdom is not just the apprehension of knowledge, but wisdom is applying the principles of Christian living to life circumstances. Listen, you can memorize, and there's people that have the Encyclopedia Britannica and don't have enough sense to know how to change the spare time. There's people that have all the wisdom in the world. You'll see them at the upper echelons of academia that, that they have, at, listen, they are students of creation and still deny the creator. It's not just the apprehension of knowledge. Wisdom is applying those principles to life circumstances. And he says the reality is there's going to be times when you're going to lack wisdom. By the way, that same word he used when he says lack wisdom, he said the same thing when he talked about wanting nothing. He's saying, is something missing? Well, if wisdom is missing, if that's what you need, if you need to know what the next steps are, here's what you do. You see, wisdom required, how do you meet it? Well, wisdom requested. He said, let him ask of God. Let him ask of God, which giveth all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Now, I'm going to say something that James goes on to say at the end of this chapter. We'll get into it next week. He talks about where we can find that wisdom. And he says later on, down in verse number 22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, seeing your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man holding his face in a glass, and beholdeth himself, goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man should be blessed in his deed. Here's the truth. There are times that we need specific, intimate details about how we are behaving. But most of the time, the actions and the course of action we need to take has already been revealed and informed by the truth of the Word of God. God's Word deals with every facet, every area of life in either particular or principle. What I mean by that is there's times that God says, don't do this thing. You want to know if God's will if you drink alcohol? God's already said it. Wine's a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Woe unto him that put a drink under his neighbor's lips. God has already dealt with that in particular. Now, we're living in a very sketchy, very gray world. There's a lot of things in the world today that are not alcohol that have the same effect as alcohol. A lot of drugs, a lot of things that can grip us in the same way. So how do we deal with that? Well, in principle. The things that God has said about alcohol are the same things that can be applied to many drugs. 
that are existent today. You say, but preacher, there are some drugs that are necessary to take. That's true. And there are times in the Word of God when God said for medicinal purposes at that time, because modern medicine has not invented drugs, but there were times when alcohol was permitted. He said, hey, listen, uh, take, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He said, if a person is overwhelmed with grief, in other words, it's a sedative at that time, they could drink wine. That doesn't mean they were to drink it casually. It doesn't mean they were to drink a little bit. It doesn't mean they were to drink it for anything other than the most extensive and extenuating circumstances for medicinal purpose. Same thing applies today if you talk about uh, many of the drugs that are existing today. Listen, I don't have a problem with your doctor prescribing you a drug if there is a medical reason for you to take that drug and if that is the only solution to that particular malady. But here's what I'm saying. God addressed it in particular as it relates to alcohol, but that by extension will in principle inform us about things like drugs. God's Word deals with everything, either in particular or in principle. Oftentimes, the wisdom we seek has already been delivered to us through the Word of God. God's Word supplies wisdom. There are many times that we're begging God to speak to us while our Bible stays closed. That's folly. That's foolishness. You want God's wisdom? Go to the Word of God. There you'll find God's wisdom. Now, there may be particular details of life that require God to impress upon you a, a particular direction. And He's fully capable of doing so through the Spirit of God. But go to the Word of God first. The, the, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. That's the first way in which God is going to speak to you. So we see wisdom requested and wisdom received. And by the way, this principle is in the Word of God. Psalms 119, verse 98 says this, Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. If you're begging God for wisdom, go to the wisdom He's already given you that's ever with you. And see if God has dealt with that matter and see if He'll give you direction in that way. God desires to give us wisdom. He gives all men liberally and upbraideth not. In other words, God don't get mad at you for needing guidance. We don't have to feel bad. There's been times I've worked on public jobs and I've had to ask somebody how to do something. I've had to ask them a hundred times how to do it because I'm thick headed. And, and eventually you start to feel bad. And you can tell when you walk up and see you coming. I'm sorry, I hate to bother you again, but I can't remember. I, I remember, and I won't wax eloquent with this because I don't have the time. I can't afford to do it, but uh, I worked a job where I worked in a, a woodworking shop. It was actually a door and window shop. And there would be certain dimensions that every door was, was made by. So door jams would be, you know, inch and seven-eighths past, you know, the, the beginning of the jam or whatever it might be. You'd have to understand all these things. And I remember having to go to other workers, I can't remember that exactly. What is it that I do here? And they get frustrated. All right, come on, I'll teach you. And then once I learned how to do it, I treat everybody else that way. So they come in, hey, can you show me? Here we go. You know, it's a circle of life. But God never is that way with us. Every time we come to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. But he says, all right, scoot up close. Open your Bible. I'll talk with you. I'll show you what to do. He, 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 he gives liberal to all men. He upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But now there are, there are some requirements. We see that wisdom is required, wisdom requested, wisdom received. We see there are situations in which wisdom is refused. What are those situations? Look at verse number 6. He gives three reasons that wisdom is not given from God to people. The first is because of indecision. It says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Now, I want to be careful how I say this. James is not speaking about the degree of our faith. But rather, he is speaking about the dedication of our faith, the direction and the devotion of it. The same word is used when it talks about Abraham, when it says that he staggered not through unbelief. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Abraham never had moments of doubt. But what it means is this. He directed his life, the course of his life was dictated by God's promise. It's not a matter of we ask the Lord, Lord, please give me wisdom. And then we go, I really believe, I really believe, I really believe, you know. Our little child making a birthday wish. I really believe. That's not what it's about. It's about saying this. I've made up my mind that God has wisdom for me. I'm going to ask Him for wisdom, and then when He gives me wisdom, I'm going to follow it. I'm not going to ask for God's wisdom and then run away from God's wisdom. When God speaks to me, I will obey. I will accept it. I won't go this direction. Because that's what He says. For He that wavered is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. And you've seen it. You've been, you've been in the ocean probably. You've seen the waves will come crashing in and then go sweeping out. And crashing in and then go sweeping out. Constantly changing directions. And so many people are like that. Lord, I need wisdom. God says, all right, that's what you do. And they say, Sign up for that. Lord, Lord, I, I need to know what to do. Alright, here's what to do. I don't want to do that. In this decision, you've got to commit yourself to the fact that God's right and that His wisdom is right and that He'll inform what you need to do, then you'll do it. Not only is wisdom refused due to indecision, but it, there's an illustration given, but also it's refused due to illustration. Uh, let me explain what I mean. Verse 7. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is this. That as God bestows his wisdom upon people, it is a testimony to the world, to us and the world around us, as the wisdom of God is exercised in our life. When the Bible talks back in, uh, or in, in verse, let me see, let me find it here, verse number 8 where it says, The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It has the idea of being restless. To ask God's wisdom and then refuse to heed it is a folly. God, listen carefully, won't waste his breath. In other words, when you ask God's wisdom and ask for it and ask for it, now we have a long-suffering God. But I will say this, if God's not going to waste his time uh, with bestowing wisdom on people that won't heed that wisdom. The more that you ask God and God says it and you say, no, I won't, and you turn away and you run around and you say, well, I did what God wanted me to do when you didn't, what a miserable testimony, what a miserable illustration that is to the world around us concerning God's wisdom. In other words, God bestows wisdom upon those that commit themselves to. And then notice what he says. He, he says because of, of indecision, because of illustration, but he says sometimes because of the information of what is asked, what is desired. You know, he would go on to say later in this book uh, that, if any man, that if we have not, we have not because we ask not. Or we ask amiss that we may consume it upon our own lusts. He gives a spiritual law. He says, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. In other words, it's a spiritual principle. But then he says, this is why, verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. All his ways. You know why God can't give wisdom to a double-minded man? Because he doesn't know what he wants in the first place. On the one hand, he's asking God to lead God and direct him. On the other hand, he's asking God to change every bit of circumstances and make life comfortable. God desires to give us what we desire. But God is only bound to give us what we desire when we desire what he desires. And so a double-minded man is never satisfied, never stable, always running about 70 different directions. If you want wisdom of God, then you have to ask God for wisdom, Commit that you'll follow the wisdom that God gives you and implement that wisdom when He does bestow it upon you. So it's given for our enlightenment. Then notice verses 9 through 11. It's given for our ennoblement. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, 
it's not just given to uh, sanctify us, as he mentions in those first few verses for our enlargement, but it's also given to satisfy us. Uh, trials and afflictions are given in life to make us happier Christians. And you might say, how could that possibly be? Look at verse number 9. He gives two examples in which we can rejoice when trials and afflictions come. It says in verse number 9, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Then he goes on to say, But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. Now let me say very clearly, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make you spiritual to be poor. It doesn't make you sinful to be rich. Uh, a person's wealth does not dictate and define their standing with God. My preacher, you say it this way, that, that at, at Calvary, God don't look down on anybody. God don't look up at anybody. He looks and straight in the eye. Ground level for the cross. And yet we do understand that for the rich and the poor, they both, though they may be different in nature, are faced with the same temptations. And what are those temptations? You remember the uh, writer of the book Proverbs asked God to give him enough bread that he wouldn't have to steal and that he wouldn't curse God, but not to give him so much that he'd forget God and stray from him. Yeah. In the same way, both for the rich and the poor, they are each faced with their temptations. Each can look at persecutions and afflictions and respond to them in a negative way or in a positive way. Or we might say this, that they respond to their afflictions either in a sinful way or in a spiritual way. In verse number 9, he tells the person of low degree to rejoice in their advancement. And he can say, well, how could that be? I think the most vivid illustration and example of it is whenever the disciples are taken and are beaten for preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when they left, when they were free from prison, when they left, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now, I don't know about you, but I've probably never taken a beating and responded that way. I've never said, oh, glory, God thinks enough of me. Put me through trials and afflictions. And yet we can meet persecution and temptation and trials that way. Paul and Silas made it that way. Man, in the Philippian jail, they could have grumbled, they could have complained, but instead they rejoiced. They prayed, they sang praises unto God at midnight. Why did they do that? Because, here's the thing, because trials perfect us, the fact that we experience trials is an indication that God thinks we're worth working on. I'll tell you, and every pastor has to guard himself against this, but a pastor only has so much time to invest in people. And sometimes people get put out with the pastor if they feel like he's, you know, Riding them, if they feel like he's always getting on to them or pushing them or encouraging them to do right, to live righteously, if he's taking them to tax and holding them to account. Uh, let me tell you a little secret. The only people that Pastor typically does that with is people that he has confidence in them that they'll respond in the first place. It is not a sign of a pastor's frustration with you, it is a sign of his faith in you that he is willing to take the time to hold you to the task and, and hold you accountable. He thinks you'll respond spiritually and righteously. It's a manifestation that he feels that you're worth his time. Now again, don't take that as any kind of commentary or indictment. I don't want people coming up to me and saying, preacher, fuss at me, okay? So, <laughs> but this principle holds true through the Word of God. If God is putting you through, hey, listen, he didn't put Job through affliction because he didn't have confidence in Job. He put him in through, through affliction because he did have confidence in Job. Satan came walking up in God's presence and said, hey, God looked at him and said, where have you been at? He said, I've been walking around doing whatever I wanted to be doing. So I've been walking to and fro through the earth. Man, I'm having to run the place. I'm doing whatever I want. Nobody can stop me. 
God says, if you consider my servant Job, he said, you may have a lot of this world, but you don't have Job. And Satan said, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. We'll see about that. God brought Job's name up. Not Satan. And God brought it up because he had confidence in Job. When we go through trials and afflictions, we ought to, we ought to count it a glorious thing. We're being exalted. God is developing us. God is working in our lives. Now, what about rich people? What about people that live lives of ease and of comfort? How should they feel about it? Well, for the low person, they're being singled out. For the person of high degree, they're being sober. In other words, we could say it this way, that the person of low degree can rejoice in that they're being held up. And the person that is rich, that is comfortable, that is well-to-do, that is prominent, that is powerful, can rejoice in that they're being humble. In that God thinks that there's something about them salvageable and workable, and that God is putting them through affliction to purge their life and to bring them to a closer walk with Him. He says in verse number 10, that the rich, in that He is made low, in that He is humble. Because as the flower of the grass, He shall pass away. Now, why would this be something that the rich man would rejoice in? Here's why. Verse number 11. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade, notice this, in his ways. Let's say the rich man's going to fade. says his ways are going to fade. You know, the only thing, we did a little traveling last year and we went out west. We get out riding through some of those plains and, and some of the desert areas. And the only thing that grew out there was the hardiest of plants. Plants that had developed a, a, an immunity to the scorching desert heat. And everything that had beauty, but did not have stability, did not have ruggedness, did not have a, 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 a sort of, a, a, what's the word I'm looking for, a defense mechanism, a proclivity to survive, did not exist. It all died away. And all you were left with was the hardiest examples of foliage in those places. In the same way, when God brings afflictions into the life of the comfortable person, He's doing it that He might purge out that which is frivolous and that which does not survive, but that He might leave that which is substantive, that the rich man's ways might depart from Him, and that He might be left in humility before God in a greater spiritual example and state. So He says that testings are for a purpose in verses 2 through 11. Look at verse 12. He reminds us that testings are for our problem. Blessed is the man, he says, that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Uh, it's almost as though one of two things is happening here. Uh, either James is adding a beatitude, or he might be summarizing the beatitudes. I think that's more likely. Our Lord gave eight beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And to these, James summarizes and he gives a synopsis in saying this. That what Christ was driving, remember, that blessed are the, you know, are, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall be, you know, exalted. Uh, he goes through, he talks about, blessed are you when men shall uh, revile and persecute you for my name's sake. Everyone would be asking, it wasn't, it, it wasn't blessed are you when you get a big fat paycheck. It wasn't blessed are you when, when uh, men give you compliments. Blessed are you when you get the best piece of fried chicken that's been on the ground. All of them were negative things. And Christ was saying that these are a blessing to you. I think James was summarizing that. And he gave this simple truth. He mentions first the crisis that's endured. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. 
it's not a blessing to avoid temptation. In fact, he says this. Remember, we're talking about testing, trials. We're not talking about solicitation to evil. We'll talk about that before we close. We're talking about trials, afflictions, difficulties, troubles. And he said earlier on, my brethren, count it all joy when. Not if, when. When you fall into the of temptation. If you're playing for this life, it's to avoid trouble. Hate to break it to you. And not just because you run with this crowd, but just as, as an experience of humanity, you're going to have problems. You're going to have trials. The question is not if you're going to face trials. The question is how you're going to face trials. Are, are you going to bear up underneath them? Or are you going to bow down underneath them? Are you going to let them destroy you or develop you? Are, are, are you going to allow them to, to pollute and perverse your spiritual walk or perfect you? Drawing you into a closer walk with the Lord. You and you alone have that decision. James says to take the path of endurance is the blessed path. To make your mind up that you're not going to let the trials get the best of you. That you may not be able to change it, you may not be able to fix it, but you can keep a good spirit before God, and you can stay faithful to Him, and you can keep serving the Lord, and reading your Bible, and going to church, and praying, and loving sinners, and loving Christians, and you're going to keep on living for the Lord, no matter what comes. James says that's the blessed path. And here's one of the reasons why. He mentions the crown endured, and then he speaks of the, or the crisis endured, and then he speaks of the crown endured. He says, But when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. This crown is mentioned only one other time. It's when the resurrected Lord gives word to the church at Smyrna. And by the way, the church at Smyrna was a persecuted church. Smyrna is derived from the term myrrh. Myrrh, of course, was, was a spice that was used in the embalming process. And uh, for that spice to get forth its fragrance, it had to be put in the, uh, in the, in the little bowl and, and with the pummel had to be ground, and, or the pummels had to be ground and uh, crushed and broken apart. And then it would be fragrant. And that's what the church of Smyrna was experiencing, was intense persecution. And the risen Lord made this promise that if you'll endure, you'll stay faithful to the end, you'll receive a crown of life. Now, I wish I had about two hours to talk about these crowns, but I don't because I've got a lot still to cut them and uh, not very much time. But suffice it to say, a crown may not mean much to you now, but when you're standing before your Lord, your Savior, and you got only one thing that you can cast at His feet to show Him how much you love Him, that crown is going to mean something to you. James says, Our trials and afflictions, if we endure them righteously, it will not go unnoticed and it will not go unrewarded. Now he says in verse 13, and you have a marked shift in the doctrine and the ideas that he's talking about. And we know that because the way that he changes his use of the word temptation. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted with any man. I told you earlier on in the beginning of the lesson that these dual definitions of temptation, they are completely and utterly separate. They are distinctly different. There's temptation in the sense of the solicitation to do evil. There's temptation in the sense of trials and afflictions, perfecting works that God performs in our life. And yet I find this to be true, both in Scripture and in my personal experience, that these two ideas do often go hand in hand. I remind you that when Satan sought to tempt Christ in the wilderness, it was accompanied by solicitation to do evil. It did not tempt him in the sense that he had no desire to do evil. But as he went into the wilderness to be tried, to be tested, to experience that, that period and season of testing, Satan sought to put before him the solicitation to do evil. In other words, 
When things get tough, it's really easy to do the wrong thing. Very simply put, when we go through temptations, it's easy to be tempted. It's easy for the solicitation to do evil to gain root and, and ground in our lives, or to take root to gain ground in our lives. It's very easy to do the wrong thing. And this, I think, you've you got to remember, the people who James is writing, they're living in pagan lands. They've left their families. They've been driven away from anybody that would hold them accountable. And he's reminding them, God may have brought this trial into your life, but that does not mean that God is permissive to you adopting the sinful ways of the people among whom you're dwelling. In other words, he's saying, God may have put you in the world, but that doesn't mean you have to be of the world. And God has not left you in a position where your only choice is to do wrong. Now I want you to notice two basic thoughts that he gives. First, he mentions, and this is the majority of what he speaks about, the source of our temptation. And he says this. First, there's something we must realize in verse 13. We must realize that God does not tempt any man to do wrong, to do evil. If you're tempted to sin, if you are being solicited to do evil, that did not come from God. God will never tempt you or allure you to do evil, to do wrong. It is not within the nature of God to do so. I think it's very interesting, again, when you look at the book of Job, you see these two principles. God was tempting Job, well, let's say it this way, God was putting Job through a temptation, but Satan was tempting him. In other words, we can say this, that God was testing Job to bring out the good in his life. But Satan was tempting Job to bring out the bad in his life. Of course, Job had the temptation to give up, to do wrong, to do evil, to, to renounce your can of faith in God, turn his back on the Lord. But that did not come from God. That came from Satan. That was what Satan wanted out of his life. And so James points two things. He says, first, he's recording a common error. And he says, what do you mean? Well, he's, he's addressing something that people often think. People often, how often have you heard people say, well, there was just nothing I could do. Or they'll say, well, I tried my best, but I still did wrong. No, you tried your best, you wouldn't have done wrong. Now, I'm not saying that I always try my best. I'm not saying I'm above sin. I'm not saying I don't make the wrong decision. But I'm saying if we're going to be intellectually and scripturally honest, if we're going to take God at His word, then we have to admit, hey, listen, God will not suffer us to be tempted, meaning the solicitation to do evil, above that which we are able. But will with the temptation provide a way of escape that we may escape it, that we may uh, resist it, that we may not yield unto temptation. If you did wrong, said so you chose to. Now, you might have resisted longer than other people would have resisted. You might say most people would have made that decision, preacher. That's all fine and well. But it doesn't change the fact that if you sin, it's because you chose to sin. And that's true of me. It's true of all of us. No man's ever put in a position where he has no choice but to sin. And he refutes this common error by saying this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted be any man. Now why does he go out of his way and say God cannot be tempted with evil? It would have been, to my mind, it would have been sufficient to say, for God neither tempted any man. It would have been fine to say, that no man say when he is tempted, that uh, I am tempted of God, for God cannot tempt any man. Or will not tempt any man. Why does God out of his way to say, God is not tempted by evil, Neither can be a man. He's, he's saying something about the nature of God. You and I, we 
interact with, we are wrong to sin and unrighteousness. It's part of our depraved, fallen nature. Right? But it doesn't register in God's mind. It doesn't register in Lord. I, I think it's the best example. One commentator spoke about a magnet. You can take a magnet and you can put it in front of gold, in front of silver, any of those things, and in front of, I assume, copper, I don't know. Some of y'all probably know better than me. But a lot of those, it won't do anything. It won't, it won't interact, it won't communicate, it, it won't be drawn to it, even though, but you put it in front of iron or something that contains iron, and immediately there's an attraction. In the same way, sin does not register as far as a desire or an allurement to God. It, it, it doesn't even, it's not that God is unaware of that. But it's, that it's irrelevant to God. It is not something that is relatable to God. He knows about it, he understands it, but he has no temptation to do evil. In other words, he does not, uh, he does not traffic in sin. It is beyond his nature to desire to do evil, therefore it's beyond his nature to tempt men with evil. Bible goes out of his way to talk about God that his eyes don't behold iniquity. They don't look on unrighteousness. If something wicked was put in your life, meaning, meaning something inherently sinful and, and contrary to the holiness of God, it wasn't put there by God because God don't have nothing to do with wickedness. It wasn't put there by Him. He mentions what we must realize, and then He mentions what we must recognize. Look at verse number 14. He says, this is where it comes from. It comes from God. He says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Three very important thoughts. Now, I wish I had a lot more time, but I don't. He speaks first off of the mother of sin. This is interesting. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived. Isn't that interesting language? Conceived. When you think about the conception of a child, you have essentially the fusion of, of the seed of a man, of the egg of a woman. The egg by itself will never produce anything. The seed by itself will never produce anything. But when those two things are met and married, conception takes place and a life is born. I believe life begins at conception. A, a life is born. An entity is born. The, the spark of the human soul is lit. And all of a sudden, sudden something new takes place. Now, there's, you're going to come up to me. You're going to have questions that I can't even answer. Uh, not about that. I understand anything about that. But uh, <laughs> about the spiritual truths, and, and if you and if it is that you got questions about it, I can't help you. But but as far as the spiritual truth here, but understand that lust dwells within the human spirit. It's latent. It's it's nascent. It's present there. I, I hesitate to say this, but we almost say it lays dormant there. And then all of a sudden, when it's met with temptation. Something awakens within us. All of a sudden, when we're given opportunity, when we're given the, the, it's presented to us. A good example of this is Adam and Eve. And this is what I meant when I said, you're going to have questions. I know that they, they didn't have fallen natures, but there's no question they had the propensity to sin, or they wouldn't have sinned. There's a possibility for Clippity to do the wrong thing. There was Eve. Had she never spoken to Satan, had that interaction ever take place, we can presume they would have ate of the tree of life and stayed in that innocent, uh, perfected condition throughout all eternity, and you and I wouldn't be sitting here tonight. But Satan goes and approaches Eve. The lust, whatever you want to believe about it, the lust of sin dwelled within her. And there's a threefold process. Satan begins with suggestion. He points out the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He places it in front of her. 
And he places within her mind the possibility of disobeying God. Next he moves to insinuation. You know what he says? He says, what God said about that tree is true. God said he doesn't want you to eat of it for your benefit, for your good, but that's not the case. And he puts within her mind the possibility, and she entertains the thought that God could have lied to her. Then finally you see the rationalization. He says, God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall become as God, knowing good and evil. And he begins to think to herself, you know, I can see how this would work out to my benefit. The, the recipe presented by James here is temptation plus lust plus a yielding of the will births sin. The lust lays within us. And all it takes is the occasion, the opportunity for it to be awoken within us. Temptation provides that. And then when our will is yielded, when we give in, when we refuse to resist, all of a sudden, sin is birthed within our heart. Then our, before we've even ever taken action, when we make up our mind to commit sin, we've committed sin. And all of a sudden, before it's ever manifest, that sin is existing in our lives. I think it's interesting. He speaks to the mother of sin. By the way, the devil is the father. He's the one that provides the necessary seed of temptation for that sin to take on life. We see the method of sin, that uh, there's a process. It doesn't happen all at once, but it develops. And all of a sudden, that sin is born. But then I want you to think with me about the maturity of sin. He says, then lust would it, when it hath conceived, when, I'll say it right here, say, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. But sin don't just stay in a static condition, in a static state. It says, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The term finished has the idea of something being brought to maturity. In other words, sin is not going to stay the way you found it. It's always going to get worse. And we see this vividly in what happens in Eve's life. No sooner is she a sinner than she becomes a seducer. She partakes of the fruit and she turns almost in one simultaneous action. She takes a bite, she turns, and now she's putting it to the lips of her husband. In other words, sin never stays where we, where we found it. It always gets worse. Like a child that takes on a life of its own. And I promise you, they grow faster than you imagine. And sin does too. Sin will never stay in the condition you found it and committed it. It will always develop. It will always get worse. It will take on a life of its own. And you won't even have to be the one that feeds it. It will continue to feed off of you. You don't believe that? How many of you raised teenagers? Amen. Long after mama's done nursing that baby, they're still going to the refrigerator. It develops to maturity. Finally, he finishes with this. I'm done because I'm past my time. I appreciate your patience. Look at verse 16. He mentions not only the source of temptation, but the subtlety of temptation. In one simple phrase, he says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. In other words, his closing statement is this. When we think of the idea of erring, of, of going errantly, you're going on a path. And if you deviate even a little bit, first few steps, it's not hard to get back. But the farther you go down that path, the farther you get from your original destination, the farther you get from the course that you set up to set out upon. He says it's a dangerous thing, this sin business. Don't err. Don't yield. First descriptive word about Satan given in the Bible is that he's more subtle. Subtle than any beast of the field. Subtle. He didn't come busting in the front door. He came in, he, he appeared. Paul talks about how he could appear as an angel of light. He doesn't come in with horns and 
and, and a forked tail and a pitchfork. He comes in looking like your best friend. And James says, as you, as you make this pilgrimage through this life, and as you endure afflictions, and as you find yourself cast in a situation you didn't ask for, and in places where Satan sees you as vulnerable and tries to get you to do the wrong thing, he says, you better be careful, because it's real easy to, take, to set a foot off the path and to find yourself in a place you never thought you would wind up. 